Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. Public funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting may soon be eliminated by Congress, which would mean an income loss of 10 to 40 percent for public and community broadcasters across the country. WERU would lose a community service grant that makes up 25 percent of our annual income. Information on how you can get involved in the effort to save federal funding for community radio is available at 170millionamericans.org and weru.org. You can also email Senators Snow and Collins through their websites and call their Washington offices. This is a critical and urgent issue. Thank you. It's coming up on 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today we'll be talking to Adam Jewell, a Mi'kmaq tribal member and a young man who recently had a life-changing traumatic event happen in his life. On May 11, 2010, Adam was in a hunting accident and was shot in the face, and he lost an eye. We'll be talking to him about this event and how it's changed his life uh, and his family's life. Um, Adam, welcome, and thank you for allowing us to talk to you uh, today. Um, first of all, I, I'd just like you to introduce yourself, Adam, and, and tell us a bit ab about yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Adam uh, Jewell. Uh, I'm 31 years old. Um, I was born and raised right here in Maine. I uh, grew up in a small town outside of Bangor uh, called Levant. Uh, my father has been um, in radio broadcast communications since I was a little kid and uh, he's, uh, he's been on 92.9 and Q106.5. It's pretty much been his career and it's kind of um, been a way of life for my family and I growing up. Uh, I have a wife and uh, a wife and three, uh, three beautiful children. Um, Laura She's been, uh, we've been married for about uh, 10 years now, and I have a son, Jeremiah, and uh, um, a daughter, Emma, and uh, a daughter, Haley, so. So, Adam. Yes. Tell us a little bit about uh, how it was growing up for you. Um, yeah, your, you know, your, your high school and some, maybe some uh, life experience uh, when you were younger. Sure. Um, my brother, uh, Ben, and I, were um uh grew up in the uh, in the 80s uh, we were the only native kids uh in our neighborhood there was a few other african uh, american kids that that we grew up with and there was maybe maybe two and so we were pretty much the the minority i guess you could say growing up around uh, the bangor area in the in the very early 80s out in levant my brother and i were the only native kids in that area and um, and so we never really experienced um, the a lot of things that a, a lot of native 
uh, kids typically experience, especially in and around the reservations, as you know. It's, it's, a, different, it's a different kind of uh, lifestyle around the reservations. We didn't necessarily grow up with that, though my father, my father did. So we were very fortunate um, in, in that respect. But, uh, you know, um, we, we had um, a, really good, a really good childhood in the sense that we had a mom and dad that loved us, and we had grandparents uh, that loved us. Um, but like with any, any individual, it's, it's never... It's never 100% perfect. You know, I, we, uh, we had our trials and our struggles as, as kids growing up as adolescents, as most kids do, um, as, you know, where it be, you know, Native American or, you know, or African American or not. You, you're a teenager, you're a child, you're going to go through things. And, uh, you know, I, of course, had a, a very rebellious uh, childhood growing up and uh, to the point where, uh, um, you know, I found myself... Um, at uh, 14 years old on the streets and uh, ended up getting in uh, you know a lot of a lot of fights and eventually <laughs> ended up getting on uh, put into um, uh, the youth center at the time the system was different then uh, they put kids who really didn't need to be there there just because they had no place to put them so um, so you you were in the youth center not yeah. not because you did something um, horrible no. or, or, or criminal but no. it was because you uh, were a very difficult I child was. and I uh, was. that's where they placed difficult children back then I yeah. I kind of realize I under, I remember that happening to some people that I know as well yeah. uh, and that's where the rebellious kids went to the yeah. to the youth center to get straightened out yeah it was more, almost a scam in the sense to scare them straight for not like that was the mentality and uh, you know it's uh it was it was it was difficult. I mean, I really they don't do that nowadays, which I'm I'm happy that they don't, you know, because that's not a place for, you know, kids like that to go. I mean, I got kicked out of school like my, I think like most people and you know, I was just, it was just I was a hard I was a hard kid to handle. You know, I I had, you know, had, had been through quite a bit. Uh, now, um in your rebellious young life, did you did you get to high school? Did you make it that far? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 I did. I always, I always valued, even though I got kicked out of school a lot, and like I said, most of the time it was for, you know, fighting or you know things of that nature. And, um, you know, I, I did make it into, I did make it into high school. Went to Lee Academy, up in, uh, up in Northern Maine, and uh, in '95 and '96, and uh, I loved it there. And uh, I had a, a brother. My brother Ben had passed away in '96 um, to suicide, and uh, so for me that was really that was really hard, you know, because he Cause was. Because you were close. We yeah. were very close, very very close. Uh, a year and uh, a year and a, a four days apart in our in our birthdays, and so we were, you know, almost you know, uh, almost the same age, only separated by a year. And so when he had when he had passed away, I, I took it hard and left high school. And uh, just kind of grabbed a backpack and, you know, because I was so used to being on my own anyway by that point, just left mm. and kind of wandered around New England yeah. until my father encouraged me uh, to go to school and finish up and get my GED. And, of course, I knew my father was right. So I went to Lauren Job Corps in 1999 and uh, got my GED, got my Parks and Rec degree, and uh, left in 
once I completed that, went to college at the University of Maine. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, but you, uh, you're into music, too. I um, am. And uh, how, how'd, that, uh, how'd that happen? Um, I needed something to focus on when I was young. And luckily, I had a, a teacher by the name of Lee Slagle, who was the music teacher at the um, Lee Academy. And uh, he stuck a guitar in my hand. And I'd always been interested in guitar anyway, because my, my father played. But he noticed in me that there was a drive and uh, really encouraged me to head in that direction. And I've never looked back. And uh, I'm a, an accomplished guitar player. It's something that I study every single day, two hours of just focused study on just playing guitar. And, um, you know, I went to school, um, went back to school, because I didn't, I didn't make it through the University of Maine the first time when I went. Um, I wasn't ready for it. And uh, so I went back in 2004 and, uh, at the University of Maine in Augusta where I studied jazz and contemporary music and then transferred to the University of Maine in Orno where I went on to study music composition from a classical perspective. But always guitar has been, you know, the premise and the focus of everything that I do musically, all resorts back to, back to that. So you, you actually uh, compose music. I do. Uh, that, that's uh, that's pretty pretty amazing to me because <laughs> uh, I can't I can't imagine uh, having that kind of talent really. It's um, it's a language. Music is a is a, is a wonderful language, and uh, you know it's whether you're just a guitar player, whether you're a drummer. I mean, everybody kind of has their focus. And for me, I've always been I've always loved movies. I've always I've always been. Uh, drawn to the the musical element inside a movie, and how scores can um, can really change and alter the emotions within a movie. And so for me, it's like that's what I've always wanted to do, and it's always been that has always been my focus. Is mm. you know, but what's your just out of curiosity? Sure. Uh, what's your favorite uh, score in a movie? Do you have one or uh, you know something? I if I was to say that I had a favorite score of all time in a movie um, would probably be The Last Samurai by Hans Zimmer. can't say as I've ever seen that. No. Yeah, The Last Samurai, it's a, um, it's a, a movie about uh, a soldier, which is Tom Cruise, which is the only movie that oh, I like Tom, that 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 Tom yes. Cruise in. So I'm sorry for all yeah. you Tom Cruise fans. It was the only <laughs> movie that I really liked Tom Cruise in. And uh, it's about a, sold, uh, a, a U.S. soldier who gets captured by the Japanese, yes. Japanese, uh, Japanese samurai. Yeah. And the reason why I like it, it's because of the integration of ethnic Japanese instruments, the Japanese, mm. qu Japanese um, choir, and uh, uh, the percussive instruments, as well as an orchestral string uh, group that you hear within that. And that's why I've always drawn it. I've always been kind of, I've always kind of been into that kind of music where you know it's not just simply classical but you have so many other cultures who have so many different kinds of instruments and instrumentation and to be able to integrate them and fuse them into one thing at, at the same time be able to produce that kind of movie on that uh, level has been amazing so that's probably why it's been my my favorite well i'm gonna yeah. have to re-listen to that just to yeah. hear the uh, i'll hear give you the, the soundtrack i own it the soundtrack yeah <laughs> yeah well that's that's great yeah. um okay so um and then you got married I did. I got. I met my wife in two thousand and one. Uh, we married in less than a year later, and uh, five months after we were married, we were pregnant with um, my son Jeremiah. 
So Jeremiah was born in 2003, and uh, it's just been, you know, one kid, and then, you know, then another kid, and then... So how many, how many children do you have now? We have, we have three. You have three? We have three children. And Jeremiah, yeah. Jeremiah is the oldest. Jeremiah is the oldest. He'll be eight this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and your other two? Or? Uh, my other two is Emma. She just turned five, and Haley just turned four. Mm-hmm. So. And you live in uh, LaGrange, right? We live in LaGrange, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how long have you been there? Uh, Laura and I moved there uh, two years ago. It's going into our second year. So. I remember you talking about the house. Yeah. Yeah. Tell tell me a little bit about this house you're in. Uh, the house that we bought, and this was this was really a um, a fluke thing because I worked for a company at the time delivering um, medical supplies, and I was I traveled all over the state um, from excuse me from Bangor to you know to Pleasant Point, you know to, into Eastport, all the way up into Millinocket, and I was coming through Lagrange one day, and I noticed this beautiful farmhouse, and I had only passed it one time. But I noticed this beautiful farmhouse just sitting there, and it said for sale. And I caught it out of the corner of my eye, and I said, I had to go back and check it out. So I went back, and I knocked on the door, and I said, you know, is this house for sale? And nobody had looked at the house in a year. They put it up on a year, for a whole year. And the house is one of the oldest houses in LaGrange. But it is the best-looking farmhouse that anybody you know, that, that's out there. I mean, houses to be around for that long usually will end up having issues. And this house was such a turnkey house. I mean, there's no issues with the foundation, no issues with the, you know, the, the old wood floors. I mean, these are all has been maintained by the people who own that house for years and years and years at a time, up to the point where the original hinges, the original doorknobs, the original framing to the house is all inside the house. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's amazing. How, how old is the house? 1888. Wow. So, yeah. And the, the foundation Do is... Do you have any ghosts that go with it? Uh, no. It, uh, funny you should say that. Because <laughs> uh, when we first moved in, my wife was out in the garage and she was with her cousin Jacob. And uh, she heard somebody walking above her. And she, they thought it was me. And I was mm. at the way at the end of the house because the house is 3,000 square feet. Wow. And I was at the other end of the house sleeping and she did she's like uh, and it was like obviously she heard somebody walking to the point where they went upstairs and they called for me and they were looking around and nobody was there huh yeah so let's hope not yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I need to call but, somebody in yeah I remember, <laughs> right i remember you telling me about your your house and and how how you fell in love with it and it's yeah. located right across from the school and the kids can walk right all back the house is surrounded by massive maple trees that are around the house in this beautiful looking elm tree that sits right in the middle of, of, of three acres. It's just this beautiful elm tree that spreads right out and it's just sitting right there. Yeah. And, and uh, you also, I remember you telling me about uh, uh, the heating, the yeah. wood. I asked you how many quarts of wood yeah. it took to the, heat that uh, house. The, how first, many the, cords, first, the first year was, the first year was, was 13. Whoa. And the, the second year, um, this, this year, uh, we have only gone through nine. Because we had the house, nice. yeah. Because wow. we had the house uh, insulated, and you got and walls in this house. I mean, <laughs> we do, we do. We have walls in the we have walls in the house. But yeah, like I said, it's it's a it's a really it's a really big home, and uh, you know, you know, nine cords, are, uh, you know, for a year worth of heating, isn't really an awful lot compared to speaking to a lot of people who use oil and stuff like that. I mean, we we have oil as a backup, but. You know, we cut our own wood, we split our own wood, we haul oh. it in, we let it, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a process for us, but, you know, it's, 
we love. There's nothing heats like wood heat. Nothing oh, absolutely. Heat, nothing will ever I, heat like wood heat. I agree so. with that. Um, so you moved to uh, LaGrange. Yeah. And uh, you must have uh, made friends in that community, kind of. And yeah, we did. We ended up um, we ended up moving there, and and of course, there's a store right in the middle of LaGrange. So we got a chance to meet the you know some of the people in town, and a lot of a lot of elderly folk actually came up, which is nice. Came up and introduced themselves to us, and um, just good folk. You know what I mean? Maine has always been a state that you can always count on people just, you know, mm-hmm. you know, just being cordial, being really nice. And they were bringing up vegetables and stuff for us from their gardens, and uh, it was it was really nice. And it's a it's it's a great place. It's a great place to live. Like any town, you have it has its pros and cons, and it has its riffraff, and you know. But that's any town. That's anywhere you go. You're gonna deal with that. Yeah. yeah. So. Yes. Now we get to your hunting. Sure. You have you love to hunt. I, I understand. I and, do. Uh, you like to turkey hunt. I I right? I, I used to. Uh, <laughs> probably not 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 anymore. Uh, that's something that I, I did promise my wife and my mm. father. That well, that's quite understandable. I'm so. not going to do that anymore. Yeah. But okay, let's let's go to um, May 11th sure. that that morning in 2010, yeah. and uh, you decided to go hunting. I did. Uh, tell tell us about that decision um, with your friend. Or... Yeah. Well, I, my wife and I had been uh, going to a fellowship up in Lincoln uh, when we moved to Lagrange. It was a, a Christian fellowship, and um, I ended up meeting a guy uh, there by the name of Joel Susan. And um, I just got to preface uh, this is I love Joel, I really do, and um, you know he he made a he made a bad error, but um, that doesn't mean that I don't love him or forgive him for yeah, that. We understand I, that. And I, I, I need I need to preface sure. how I'm going to explain that with, with that. Yeah. Um, so I I didn't really know Joel uh, that well, but he he's a really good guy, and uh, so the first time he calls me up, he says, "Hey, you want to go turkey hunting?" I said, Absolutely. So um, that night. As I was packing my stuff, I'd have to leave at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I told my wife as I was packing my stuff, I really don't want to go. And she's like, well, why don't you just call and cancel? And I said, ah, you know, because they've been planning this, and I really don't want to back out of it. It's a good chance for me to kind of get out because I'm a father of three kids. I work and I go to school. There's not a lot of time for me to really hang out with, uh, you know, other guys. And it's a great opportunity for me to take some time and just do that. So I pack my stuff, and I wake up that morning, and next to my bag is orange. My wife had put orange on my on my bag, and I look at it and I say, obviously my wife doesn't know turkey hunting because you don't wear orange when you turkey hunt. And my wife, the reason why she put it there is she told me she's uh, she's like, um, my husband's gonna get shot was was her thought. If if he's out there, what is he doing? And she you know she didn't grow up hunting or anything like that. So you know I took the hat and I the orange and I put it off to the side. And um, for those who don't turkey hunt, the reason why is turkey see in color. I was going to ask yep, you that. They yeah. can see they can see in color, and um, and so, you know, we go and uh, Joel and I we went to the first field. His brother, his brother uh, Josh, and his nephew was with us. And now, how far away was this uh, it, field? It, and it was in Chester, which yeah. is outside of Lincoln. Um, so we had uh, we went we went one place. We called them in. Um, None of the turkeys came in, so we went out and around. Out and okay, up. How, do, how do you call turkeys? Well, the tur- there's a turkey call that that, yeah. that, that you can use. 
Um, some of them are made of wood, some of them electronic, and they just, they, yeah, there's certain calls that you can mimic that will call a turkey in. Okay. And um, and the reason why, you know, typically you put yourself up against a tree, you wear camouflage, you call them in, you know, usually it's in a, in a, in a uh, fielded area where a lot of them come out, especially because there's, you know, it's because of the sun and everything and stuff like so that. So it's usually a clear... Time. A clear field. Usually, yeah. Usually, yeah. it is. It's a clear field when they come out. They do, they do. They are in the woods, but usually fields are a good place to go when you, when you're looking for um, that kind of game. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had gone. We were sitting in a field for a while, and it's early morning time. And Joel's like, "Well, let's go up to this place that I know. I'm watching his property, and uh, it's a great field. I know that there's definitely turkeys up there." So we're like, "Okay." So you know, we uh, empty out our weapons and. Um, uh, put them on safety, stick them in the in the trunk, and we go. We get to the field. And what kind of weapons were you carrying? Uh, we were carrying 12-gauge shot, uh, shotguns uh, with magnum uh, turkey rounds, which are a high-velocity round. And um, they're designed to, you know, yeah. to do some So, so to do they're some pellets, damage. right? They pellets are. They're, they're, le- they're um, copper pellets with uh, lead inside the pellets. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a real... It hurts, I mean, but the pellet, when, if it hits you, I mean, the, the copper's real soft metal anyway, mm-hmm. so it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up breaking, um, depending on what it hits. Uh, and so we, we get to the field, and we start walking up, and uh, we put ourselves up against uh, the, edge of the edge of the woods. Mm-hmm. About what time was this, Adam? This is about 7 o'clock. Uh, a.m.? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's about 7 o'clock a.m. We call a turkey in. A turkey comes, we see him across the field, and... Um, it looks over at us, and then it starts walking our way, and then it goes back into the woods. And Joel said, well, let's shoot out and around. There's a place where we can put ourselves, and what we'll do is we'll try to call the turkey that way. Well, so we go out and around, and uh, we set ourselves up, and uh, his brother Josh and I are up against a tree, and Joel takes his uh, eight-year-old nephew, Isaac, with him. So Josh and I are sitting there, and Joel goes out and around uh, to the back end, and she's going to try to call it to see if it comes this way. Well, it was getting cold sitting up against the tree, and I was, of course, I was sitting there, and I'm like, I'm going to try to make my way out to see if I can see if there's any, you know, turkeys out on the edge of the field. So put my safety on. I didn't have a round in the chamber. I start walking up the embankment. I get to the top of the hill, and I look down towards the center, about 100 yards away, was a decoy. And I didn't see that decoy when I, when I had walked up initially. And I look over, and so I put my rifle to the ground, to my right. I get on my knee, and uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm about four feet away from the wood line. I get on my knee, and I just stare at the decoy. Well, why do you think the decoy was there? Is that the decoy was there because Josh had come out behind me and had put a decoy in the middle of the field and put himself up against, up against a tree. Oh, I see. And the decoy was to attract other... Yes, it other was a birds. turkey decoy to attract okay. other... And I didn't, I didn't know that because, you, you know, you can't... You're not supposed to yell or those kinds of things when you're, when you're hunting and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Those yep. things you just... Unless, obviously, you absolutely have to, but you don't yell when you're looking for game or anything like that. So I didn't know that. And so um, I was watching it shift, and the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, no, there's other hunters in the area. Really dangerous at that point because everybody's wearing camouflage. Right. So, and we're all carrying 12-gauge shotguns. So, right. um, so we're, um, I'm sitting there, and uh, Joel comes around the corner. 
and I had, I had this, is, this is how much time it took. Now, around the corner, you're sitting at the edge of the field. Yes, I am. And Joel would be to your right? Or Joel would be to my left. To your left. And he's about, he's about 30 yards away, yeah. and there's a little bit of a corner there. And Joel comes around the corner, mm-hmm. and I see Joel, and I see his, his nephew Isaac sitting, uh, standing next to him. Yeah. And so I have this much time to point to Joel point towards the center of the field that there's a decoy. Were you standing up at this I, time? No, I was still, I was still kneeling. Uh-huh. I was wearing a cam- uh, military camouflage BDU jacket, yep. a pair of black boots, um, a hat, and uh, I had a pair of blue jeans mm-hmm. uh, that I was wearing. And uh, I pointed to him. Isaac made eye contact with me. Joel made eye contact. I thought that Joel made eye contact with me. Yeah. Pointed towards the center of the field, and when I brought my hand back, all I saw was his gun raised, and he fired. So my, my left hand absorbed um, the majority of what, my, of what my face should have gotten, with the exception of my right side. And um, it, the, it was concussive. He was 30 yards away. He was using a three and, a, three, and three quarter inch shell mm. out of four. Yep. The gauge was a four. Three, three and three quarter inch shell. And uh, I dropped, boom, just like that. And, and I rolled over and I, I just... It was just, I yelled. I was like, ah, and I was, because it hurt so bad. And I, you know, and just, I rolled over instantly. And I just, first thing I did was I calmed my breathing down. I knew instinctively that's what I had to do. I was checking my chest, and Joel ran over by that point. And, of course, an eight-year-old is sitting there. Mm. Tragic for him to see, obviously, that happen. Blood was everywhere. My face was ripped open. And I was checking my hands to make sure my hands were still, obviously, still intact. And, uh. They called the ambulance, and Joel was making sure that there was no other blood that was, you know, because he works at EMMC as a radiology tech, so he does know first aid and, and stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, so he was checking me to make sure, and he was just, I'm sorry, Adam, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, God, I'm sorry. And I, and I told him, I said, Joel, I forgive you, it's okay. It was the only thing that was coming out of my, out of my, uh, out of my mouth. And I, I, I couldn't see, obviously, anything. I mean, I had just got shot in the face, and so my eyes were swollen, there was blood everywhere. And I said, uh... I just prayed to God. I said, God, I just, I just want to see my wife and kids one more time. If it's my time to go at that point, fine. You know, I just want to see him here one more time. So they called the ambulance. And uh, so I laid in the field for about a half hour. And it was cold. It was very cold. It was very cold. Um, you know, probably about as cold, I'm thinking anywhere between 40, 45, maybe 50 degrees. And, you know, I'm, my, my chest is exposed. My, mm-hmm. you know, everything is exposed there. And, uh, and so, um, you know, the ambulance comes about a half hour later. They get me all squared away. They put me in the back of a truck because I was about 300 yards right. in. Right. Now, now, while you were laying on the ground, yeah. I think I read something. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- did, uh, did your friend try to keep you warm? Um, yeah, he would. Joel, Joel would, uh, he would, uh, he would lay, you know, he'd, he'd lay on me, mm-hmm. try, to keep, try to keep me warm that way. Yeah. Um, and... You know, he was just his. He was broken over this, this whole thing. So he's using his body heat. Yeah, he to was. Keep you warm. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And um, you know, it's uh, it, it, he didn't know what he didn't know what to do at that situation because I mean, imagine, and I'm imagining from his perspective, what have I just done? I just, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you, you, I can't fathom yeah. his his perspective on that at all. Um, and so. When the ambulance came and they got me and they put me back in a truck and brought me in, 
got me in the ambulance, and uh, there's been no pain meds administered by this point. So this is like, you know. You're in excruciating I'm in some, I'm in pain. I'm in serious pain, but I didn't, I didn't want to pass out. I pushed myself to stay awake um, because I didn't, I, didn't want, I didn't want to pass out. I didn't want to not be coherent. I wanted to know what was going on. And uh, the lady asked me in the back of the ambulance, she says, can I call anybody? And I said, you can call my dad. And she said, well, who's your father and what's his, what's his number? And I've, by this time, I've given him my social, I've given him my mm -hmm. blood type, I've yeah. given him my age, and I uh, was very coherent. And uh, they called, I remember her picking up the phone and calling my dad. And uh, my, dad, uh, my dad fell right out of his chair. Mm -hmm. Of course, the thought of losing another son. Yeah. You know what I mean? From my dad's perspective, he just, he had to go. Yeah. And uh, so he, they ended up getting me to, rushing me to Lincoln. They were going to airlift me from Lincoln to Bangor. It's pretty serious. But they were figured they could just floor it in the back of the ambulance to get me from Lincoln to Bangor quick. They got me from Lincoln to Bangor in about 25 minutes. Wow. That's how fast they were, they were traveling down the highway. I get to, uh, I get to the hospital, and I'm, I remember my father and the people being there. And uh, they had administered some morphine by that time, but still I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't want to. I didn't want to pass out because I was. I was. Were you were afraid that. Yeah. I was. I. I wanted. I wanted to. I wanted to hear my wife. I wanted to make sure that that she knew that I was there and that I and that I knew that she was there and that I loved her because I. Di I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know the extent of my. Anger. All I knew was I was shot in the face and it hurt really bad. Yeah. Um, so the doctors get there, and they had to cut the sides of my eyes open to let mm -hmm. all the blood out because the blood was pushing my eyes out of the socket. Wow. And there was some serious damage to my, to my face, and to, but mostly to my eyes. And uh, the doctor came out and they said, your son's going to make it. He's going to be fine. We're talking to my mother and my father and my wife. And the doctor looked over at my mom. He said, your son has a hard head. And <laughs> my mother laughed. She's like, I know because <laughs> all the pellets are, in my, are lodged inside my, my skull and in my sinus cavity. There's bone here that stopped them. Um, but there's one pellet that shot underneath my left eye and went all the way back and is sitting on my optic nerve on my left eye, the only eye, my good eye. And uh, it's just sitting there. Is where the brain starts and the optic nerve starts is where that pellet is. Right now? Right now, right yeah. Now. As you speak, it's yes. there. Yes, it is. Okay. And um, nothing stopped that pellet. I mean, other than, in my opinion, you know, the, the hand of God. Because you, for a, my bone stopped everything else. But there's nothing behind my eye to stop a pellet or pellets going into my face. Nothing. It's just liquid, mm. you know, and, and, and soft tissue. And so then began the process of recovering and coming to grips with the fact that uh, I'm going to be blind. Uh, and the doctor told my father, your son's never going to see again. And my father, knowing the kind of work that I'm into, um, was just, he was thankful to, that I was alive, but the fact that I'm blind. Could you really see heavy. at all at that time? Not a thing, not a thing. I, at first, not a thing. I was laying on the, uh, the hospital bed, and the doctor came in, Dr. Wilbanks came in, and um, he says, your son has a 2% chance, his right eye's gone, my retina was disattached, uh, it was all black. And uh, my left eye says, your son is, um, your son's not going to be a C again. He has, excuse me, a 2% chance of, of seeing. He opened up my left eye 
very fuzzy, but I saw him. I saw his glasses. I saw his tie. I saw my father very faintly at the end of the bed, and I saw a clock behind my father. I recognized it was a clock, and he was amazed. He said, this is the best that your son's going to see, and my father was ecstatic. And uh, in my mind, I knew that it wasn't. I wouldn't allow myself to... to, to so you just determined right d- then yes. that you were going to... There's, no there's no way that I'm not going to be able to watch my wife and kids grow up. There's just, you know, mm. there's just no way. I wouldn't let my... I'm, you know that I'm kind of a pretty... No, stubborn, no, you're a very stubborn guy. I'm a very stubborn individual, and uh, I would not... I didn't want to think that my children would grow up without a dad who wasn't able to protect them and, and, and be able to see... You know, because I'm a very protective father and I'm a very protective husband in the sense that I, I would lay my life down for my kids and my wife in a second. And uh, that began the process of, you know, trying to be able to see. And so for three and a half weeks, I was blind. I knew what it was three like. Three and a half weeks. I knew what it was like to be blind. Wow. And it was, it was, uh, it was sad. It, it truly was, was a sad experience because, you know, those who have, have been able to see and then go blind miss what, you know, you're, you're missing a sense, you're missing a part of you, or your perception of, of the world. And um, it, was, uh, it was very challenging. Hmm. Now, how long were you in the hospital? Were you in there for those whole three weeks? Or? I was in there for, oddly enough, I was in there for about five days before, five they, days. before, they, sent, before they sent me home. And, uh, you know, I'd, during that time, my body had gone and I'd had uh, some anxiety attacks mm-hmm. and other things that it, that it just instantly my body just started going into and I don't know why. Um, I was on obviously well, a, lot, yeah. a lot of, medi- a lot of med- medication at the time, but there was nothing that was stressful around me that I, that I was feeling, but my body obviously knew that there was some stress there, some strain. Two weeks or so went by and I went to Dr. Kurt Young at um, Vision Care in Bangor. Great doctors over there. Great doctors. And he looked at me and he says, Adam, he says, we have to take your eye out. We have to nucleate your eye because there's a thing called sympathetic ophthalmia that it's when the, the blood meets the fluid of the eye that if, uh, if that happens, there's a percentage, there's a chance that you're, will, will create an autoimmune deficiency where those antibodies will then attack your good eye. Mm. And it's what Louis Braille ended up becoming blind over was sympathetic ophthalmia. Wow. And um, so that made the choice. He's like, either you can go to Boston and get a second opinion, but you're really running out of time. You're, you're within the two-week window, so we have to make a decision. Either we take it out or you wait. And that was a tough decision for me. Yeah. Letting that, letting, having to make that and letting it go it was really tough. And uh, it was an, it's an experience that I, I would, I can only relate to how painful it was because they didn't, they didn't put me out they gave me a, a like a sedative yeah. and something to calm me down to kind of make me calm down. But I had a, a really high tolerance for, for medication. Anyway, just naturally, I don't know why, but I just do. And, um, of course, I was very nervous and I think had had to play a part in it. And uh, so I was awake while they were cutting out yeah. nucleating my eye. And uh, out of the two, I would rather have gotten shot again. Then, so it was really it, excruciatingly. It hurt. Yeah. It really. I mean, it really, really hurt. The, the the headache. If anybody who's ever had a migraine, I've had migraines before. It was almost a migraine times a hundred. Wow. Is how bad that the, the pain after it was. And of course, the realization of my eyes gone. 
Hmm. You know, the first time I had broken down was in a parking lot, was in the parking lot outside after everything when I was just alone with my wife. It was the first time that I had broken down, I think, out of the whole situation. Because emotionally and mentally, if I was to lose it, everybody else around me would lose it. So I needed to stay focused and I needed to be, okay, things are all right, it's fine, let's go. You know, because as soon as you start, the, the cornerstone, as an example, starts breaking down and crumbling. Everything else around it will. There's nothing there left to hold it up. And so that was my, my thought and perspective the whole time is stay, stay strong and push on and let it go. Mm-hmm. You know. Let it go. Was that hard? Yes, it is. Mm. It, I think anybody who's ever suffered any kind of traumatic experience in their life would know how difficult it is to let certain things go. And this isn't the first thing that, that I've had to encounter that was really difficult. So I understood tragedy, as, as most people understand tragedy. But I mentally had to shut it off at that point. Mm-hmm. Say, it's done. And, and not go back there. Because that's a very dark place to go. So you shut the door and you threw away the keys, sort I did. of? I had yeah. to. And push on. And realize mm-hmm. two things. I can see. And I'm alive. Yeah. Oddly enough, my left eye is my dominant eye. And I, though, I'm, though I'm right-handed, my left eye is my dominant eye. And so um, I went from 2050 vision after that, after, after my eye was taken out, 2050 vision to, with hemorrhaging, to 2030 vision with light hemorrhaging, to 2020 vision with no hemorrhaging, to 2015 with no hemorrhaging, back to 2010. My vision before I was shot was 2010. I could see an amazing distance. Mm. And um, that's where my eye is now is at 2010. So, but you've still got this pellet lodged. In I the, do. Yeah. On the was it the optical nerve? Yeah, it's, you right, said? it's right on the optic yeah. nerve. Yeah. And are they going to do anything about that? They can't. They can't. They can't. It, they risk severing the nerve. Mm. They risk severing the nerve. So, um, you know, I don't foresee, and they don't foresee there being any any problems. I sure hope that there's not. Um, but. You know, my when they sent my eye away, because they had to send my, my right eye away for testing for sympathetic ophthalmia, and it did come back positive for sympathetic ophthalmia, which means that whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 60 years, or never, that I, I could keep my eye. So that that's kind of a looming thing that's sitting sitting on me right now is, all right, potentially I, I could go blind, but potentially you can get in a car accident driving down the road, and potentially you could slip and fall on the ice. There's some There's things that you just, you can't, you can't let ride you. You acknowledge it, you deal with it, it's there, you move on. That's it. So, what sort of, uh, you, you, you were, you were uh, in the hospital, then you were home, you were blind, yes. you uh, were going through all of these different uh, experiences. Mm. Uh, how was your wife reacting to all of this? Laura is, uh, she's one of the strongest Strongest ladies I know. She has the same mindset that I do. We're both very stubborn individuals. And anybody who's been married for any length of time knows when you get two stubborn individuals, you're, you know, it creates for a really unique situation sometimes. But I knew that Laura would be able to handle it. I knew she would. That's why I married her. She's strong enough that, you know, she, she's a tough kid. And uh, it was hard for her because she had to deal with people she had to deal with um, the emotions of a wife watching her husband go through this. She had to deal with the, the, the financial mess, the medical papers, the appointments, while raising 
three kids. And um, three very active. Three very kids. active children, and Jeremiah is autistic. Mm. So you're dealing with an, anybody who has an autistic child knows that, that they're very special people, but they require special attention. When you get two younger children who are just busy by nature because they're children, it makes for a very complex and very stressful situation. But she never lost composure once during that time. Not once. Yeah, it's amazing. Yep, not once. So, now what about uh, what about your 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 resources? Your uh, I'm sure you must have gone through some sort of financial crises during this time. We, like most people who are in this kind of situation, they they do. Um, did you have insurance? We did not. You did not. We did not. So word to the wise of people out there, if you can get insurance, get it. Um, we did not have insurance uh, at the time. And um, so it made for a very interesting so you, scenario. So you have mounting medical bills right now? Uh, yeah, I, to, to, a cer- to a certain extent. And I, I guess this is a, a, a good spot to, to, to bring up um, a few things that, have, that I didn't want to leave out. Okay. Of, of the situation. Um, when Joel shot me, his eight-year-old nephew saw me, identified me, and made eye contact with me. So an eight-year-old saw who I was, and he didn't have a gun. And I know that in the papers, of course, this is an incident. It's an it's a incident that hits home because we're a huge hunting state. Sure. Um, that was never brought out. And I'm not trying to say, and I preface the conversation with that, that I love Joel and I forgive Joel, but it was very negligent raising and not identifying a target and, and shooting somebody. And and so the situation where it stands now is that I have to, even though Joel has he served his 30 days in jail. He no, he served 30 days in jail for? For negligence with a firearm. So there was, there was a criminal charge. There was. There was. Okay. And the, the, they actually wanted to go federal. They wanted to go for felony because of, because of the incident. And I pushed that it didn't. Yeah. I advocated that it didn't go that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and luckily it did not. And um, you know, he served 30 days in jail. He has to do 40 hours of community service of talking to people about his mistake, which I think is good. I think people need to understand the importance of knowing the target that you're looking at. And uh, before you pull the trigger, you better know what's there because the people do die in and people need to know that they can be safe hunting in these main woods without being shot. Um, so right now, unfortunately, I have to pursue Joel as much as I don't want to within uh, civil because Laura and I, we didn't expect this to happen. Yes, we, we should have, you know, insurance is tough when you're raising three kids to come by, and a lot of people don't have insurance. My kids have it, but we don't. Um, but we have to go that direction because medical bills. You know, um, I lost my CDL license. There's a lot of things that I can't do anymore. CDL, what is that? Uh, commercial driving license. And I had my hazmat. So I, there's a lot of things that I'm not able to do anymore because of stipulations of um, me driving and certain things, you know. Sure. So it's, it's one of those things where it's, though terrible, we didn't want it to go that way. We kind of have to. So mm. it's unfortunate. So that's really taken a toll on your your friendship that you had and you know we were building our friendship because we really didn't know each other off of um this incident and what a way to build a relationship with somebody hmm. off of this it's not easy and you know like i said this we don't 
we I don't hate him. I'm not I'm not angry with him. Um, it is what it is, and but at the same time, there is accountability. There's accountability that you have to when you're a gun when you're uh, um, somebody who's behind a firearm, just like you are if you're behind a vehicle. Um, you have to be accountable for your decisions and the ramifications, both good and bad. And the ramifications of, of not identifying your target and shooting somebody is, you know, you lose your firearm for 10 years. I mean, you, you lose your uh, hunting and fishing license for 10 years. You lose your firearm if, if um, you're on probation. Um, you know, you lose a lot of things. Uh, and that's, and even if it comes down to financial and legal as well, being obligated to, to be accountable to the person that you hurt. And that's just the unfortunate side effect of that. But consequences can be both good and bad. And unfortunately, though there were some good things that happened out of this, you still have to you still have to acknowledge what you know what happens you know for for violating the law. Sure. Now you said there were some good things that came out of this. Can you name one? Um, I've gotten uh, phone calls and emails from people who have come up to me and have said, uh, talking about forgiveness, you know, that I was able to forgive this person. Somebody stopped me in the parking lot at Walmart and says, I, you know, hearing your story and hearing how you've handled the situation and how you forgave him for that is amazing. And, I, you know, they've told me stories about how they, there things that happened in their lives that they had to forgive people for. And to me... Forgiveness is pinnacle because if you don't forgive people and things that happen in your life, that thing is gonna is gonna hound you for the rest of your life. It's gonna eat at you. It's gonna have its thumb imprint on you. It's gonna affect how you live. And as soon as you can forgive and let it go, and just let it go, hmm. and move on, and learn to move on within the situation, and learn to handle your emotions emotionally, spiritually you know, physically and financially, whatever it may be, you learn to manage those those things. And that's really, you know, very, very important. And that that's something that I would say it's, it's positive out of this situation. There's a lot more good, you know, I'm able to see. I can still take care of myself. Yeah, I can still drive. I can't drive commercially and I can't drive, you know, with a, you know like hauling hazardous materials or anything like that. And, um, but I can still see, you know, I can still take care of my wife and kids. I can still compose. I can still play music. Um, I can still play with my children. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot. There's a lot of good things that that have come out. Because honestly, Donna, it could have been really bad. I mean, you saw, you saw how I was. You saw yeah. the yeah. the damage to that. And it's just, you know, tough thing to walk get and walk away from so fast. Yeah, you know? I uh, was was amazed. I guess at at, at how well how well you've come through this. Because um, many people that have had the same experience or similar uh, would, wouldn't have uh, come out so positive. Um, and, and, and I do think that you need that, that, that positive mindset to heal. Mm. Because if you, if you let this, as you said, if you let this uh, negative, maybe, I don't know if you'd call it hate, but a negative feeling in there grow, mm. it is, I mean, it's like cancer and, overtake everything yes it will so uh yeah i i uh, i think uh you're a very strong very strong person and admire that strength um so and and 
so tell me, what are you, what are you doing now? Besides being on this radio show. <laughs> well, uh, right now I'm uh, I'm finishing up uh, school because while I was while I was hurt, um, I needed something to keep my mind focused. And uh, so this school is a direct result of this yeah, incident. Yeah, the yeah. school is a direct result, and I probably wouldn't be in uh, school that I'm in right now if it if it wasn't for this. Um, I was bedridden. I couldn't see very uh, very well very well yet. My, my vision came back over a period of time. Um, I enrolled in a school called Full Sail University. And anybody who's out there can Google Full Sail University and look at their media program. It's the number one school in the nation that puts students um, through their media school, whether it be you know, you know, film and, or sound recording and whatnot. They put these people in jobs directly into Pixar and DreamWorks and Disney and other independent films and stuff like that. And so a lot of the faculty members actually work at these, at these organizations. So it's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent school, and they opened up their online program uh, to students throughout the United States who couldn't go to Florida because the school is located in Florida. And I'm like, well, it's a good time for me to be able to sit back and do some schooling and, and grow as a, as, a, as a student of music in other areas, and um, might as well do it. So I signed up for... I signed up at Full Sail and have been in Full Sail uh, since last August, and uh, my GPA is a 4.0. Wow. And the dropout rate at Full Sail is 80%. Wow. It's that's a t- that's it's, great. It's, it's a tough school to get through. It really is because it's, it's, it's physically and mentally demanding. You're, so it's pushing your creativity at the same time it's pushing your information. So, mm. so, what, so give me an example of what you've learned at that school. Um, I've learned most more about... Um, networking within and professionalism within the industry more than anything because it's a different kind of communication that you have to have with people who are in that industry. Uh, you know, you can't talk to a guy like Wes Studi, for example, the same way that you and I could probably have a conversation. There's different formalities that you have to a- approach with when, when dealing with people. And though you may be a really good artist, you may be able to compose really, really well, if you don't have the professional attitude and the right approach the first time, it will, it will, it will definitely hinder your relationship. And once you start developing that kind of uh, um, personality w- amongst people, word travels fast. Bad words travel faster than good words. And so I've learned the most about that and I've, and I've approached Full Sail from the right perspective the first time. So, so what sort of courses or things do they teach? Well, uh, they teach, like, you know, I had to take a mathematics and trigonometry online. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it was, it's a whole class, a whole semester of schooling combined into three and a half weeks. So you have a whole semester of mathematics combined into three and a half weeks, and it is intense. It's very intense. I mean, every day your face is in a book, you know, uh, or, your fa- or you're in a project, or you know, you're writing or composing something and you're sending it off and getting it critiqued by, you know, guys who are sound recording or recording engineers for bands like um, Metallica and Mary J. Blige and all these other bands. These are the guys that are running the course and they hear your stuff and they're saying, good, 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 bad, 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 change this, 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 and this, you know, and send it back. And so you're constantly getting feedback on what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And those are the kinds of things that you're getting. And it's very intense. So, y- so your focus area for that is is music, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. But they have others 
Do they have other, uh, like, uh, video? They or? do, yeah. I think I remember you telling me about the school a while back, yeah. so something about, uh, you said, you mentioned Avatar. Yeah, yeah. And tell, tell me about what you told me about Avatar. Uh, Ava- Avatar, a lot of students actually worked on the, on the film in Avatar from Full Sail. A lot of the sound recording students and a handful of uh, the animators worked in Avatar, and they were students, they were grad students that ended up getting a job before they left, the, before they even left college, that were working with, uh, you know, James Cameron in this movie, and uh, which is, um, which is amazing, and, um, and so it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a, it's a great school, it's pricey, like any mm-hmm. school, it's pricey, but um, the, the things, you, you, you'll get out of it as much as you put into it, like with anything that you do. You'll, you'll always get out of whatever situation you're, that you're in, whether it be something creative or just life itself. You get out of life what you put into it. And if you give 120%, you may not see 120% return right off the bat. But eventually, if you keep that mindset, you will, you will see that. And that's always kind of been the thing that my father has, has drilled into me. You know, you get what you give. Hmm. So with all of this, seems like, Lots of things have happened since yeah. May 11th, mm-hmm. 2010. Yeah. Hasn't even been a year yet. Hasn't been a year. No. And you're still learning. Yes. Yeah. Constantly learning. I think learning should be a part of everybody's, and this, I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying this without having personal experience, but learning should be an everyday thing, learning something new every single day whether it be a new vocab word or learning, you know, more about whatever trade that you're in. You should always continue to learn and educate. Education, you know, is really learning about learning how to teach yourself because everybody has a different way of how they think about things. But when you get into that mindset of, of, of being educated and, um, and, and, and keeping your mind busy about things that are really positive, you know. Yeah, because uh, you could have very easily fallen... Way, way down low. Yep. Um, yep. But you, you kept your mind focused. I did. And you kept positive. I did. Um, and you kept busy. Yes. <laughs> Very busy, yeah. it, it looks like, uh, right from the time you, uh, you, you got home, mm-hmm. it sounds like. My mind was busy. I kept my mind really busy, whether it be in listening to audiobooks. My brother bought me audiobooks because I couldn't read and I couldn't watch TV or anything like that. So my brother bought me uh, audiobooks. So... You know, he bought me, uh, um, you know, the Jason or the Bourne series. He bought me the Bourne series in audio format. And he bought me uh, Call in the Wild. I just put on my headphones and just sat there and just imagined and, mm. let, and let my mind do the the imagining, you know what I mean, and, and, and playing the scenes in my head. And that's kind of how I just lived for, you know, almost a month worth of blindness. So. Wow. Well, I you know, you, you, you just... Uh Full of all sorts of uh, insight, and uh, and how old are you? I'm 31. 31. I just turned 31. Yeah. yeah. And, and when did you turn 31? I turned 31 February 11th. February February 11th. Yeah. There's that date. I know. 11th is a very scary day. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, my my last question to you, mm-hmm. after all of your uh, expounding on things, mm. if there's one thing that you would like to tell people that are listening about your experience, what do you think that would be? One thing that I could... That you would like to pass on from your experience. 
You've kind of been doing that all through the show. Yeah. Is there um, something more important than anything else? Or? Um, selflessness. Mm. I think selflessness is a good approach to life. Thinking about others before you think about yourself. Putting others first. I think a lot of things that people always think of me, 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 me all the time. And that can be plaguing. I mean, it could do some serious, some serious harm to yourself. When you start giving of yourself and you start investing into other people and you stop looking at your situation and you start looking at the situations that are around you and you start saying, I really got it good. You know, I, it, you know, looking at my situation, yeah, it hurt. I went through a lot. But there are a lot of people right now, especially over in Japan and other places, who are going through things way worse than what I'm going through. And my heart breaks for the people of Japan. Um, but the people in our own community, the people in our own neighborhoods, if you start giving of yourself, it makes what you're going through a lot lighter and you start seeing other people and, and their needs. And I think that that's a good place to start for, for people, is to give of yourself and invest into a human life. Because mm. nothing's more important than, than a human being. Kind of reminds me of a quote comes to my mind it's uh you've probably heard it before it's it's it says uh i once complained because i had no shoes and then i saw a man who had no feet mm. that's what this situation kind of reminds me of it it's like you're saying you know you, no matter how bad it is there's always somebody out there that's mm. got it a little bit worse yeah. so we're not all born with a silver spoon in our mouths and some of us have to fight for that silver spoon <laughs> You and know. it's and it's all it's all mental attitude. It's all yeah. positive. Yeah. So, uh, and with that, I think I'm going to uh, unless you have one more thing you want to say. Yeah. No, just thank you very much for uh, for bringing me on. I really appreciate the opportunity, Donna. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Webinaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD. Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, Adam Jewell, for agreeing to be on the show. And please join us uh, next month for another Webinaki Windows.